Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yangis. This week, my guest is Lisette Rios. Lisette is the founder and CEO of Chic Influence. Launched in 2015, it's a public relations and talent management firm focused on giving a voice to the new generation of brands and talent. With more than 15 years of combined public relations and talent relations experience, her unique and strategic approach to developing, managing, and delivering high-profile results-driven public relations strategies and branded campaigns makes her a true expert in the industry, inclusive of general market and U.S. Hispanic consumer groups. But we have a first, mi gente. Lisette has so many gems and so much chisme to spill. I had to divide her interview into two parts. She shares how her Cuban background influenced just about every decision she made and how the entrepreneurial spirit of her family actually influenced her and had her dreaming of a job in corporate America. She also shares what she learned about herself and how corporate America sees black, indigenous, and people of color consumers. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Hola, Lisa. I am so excited to have you on here today. We've already been having fun and we haven't even dived into anything. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here with Wine and Chisme. Probably like my two favorite things to do is drink wine and chismeag, so I'm all about this. Girl, see, this is perfect for you. I'm super excited because there's so much to talk about. I have kind of been over the last, I don't know, I think I connected with you maybe six months ago. I had found... So like around there. Yeah. So I had found you before, like through Julissa. Like she had tagged you in something, Julissa Pitago, the owner and founder of Beautiful Girls. I found mm-hmm. her. I was following her. And then she, I think, had tagged you in one of her media, like one of her media things that she was doing. And then I click over to Shift Influence. I was like, ooh, I like this. And then I saw that you were the founder. So then I click over and I was like, I like her vibe. <laughs> and now posting stuff about your training and your running and just different things. We will get into that because I love like the stuff that you post on social media it cracks me up. And sometimes we just really need that, especially in this kind of moment that we're in. We need to be able to smile. But before we get too much into the cheese we have to get mm-hmm. to the wine. So I try every week to try a different type of wine. This week, we are kind of in the middle of everything that's going on, but I wanted to specifically go out and support, a, you know, black wineries. So I went and got the McBride Sisters Collection, 
Ooh. So this is the bottle, what it looks like. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, so people that are just listening, it's a white label with like a gold embossment with um, the letter N and S in the middle and two lions on each side. So this is their red blend. And it's, you know, it's a Central Coast wine. It's from San Luis Obispo. I'm trying to see if it shows what the blend is, but I do have their little tasting, kind of their their mini tasting notes. So just let me read that before I take a sip of the wine, because I've not tried this one yet. Yes. I'm very excited for this because I do need to expand even my own wine collection or just things that I order regularly. So I'm literally going to Google this as you yes. walk so us through. Says, this is the, the, Coast Calif- the 2016 Central Coast California Red Blend. And it says, the Garnet Gem. This wine is complex yet approachable with flavors of plum, cherry, blackberry, alongside Tabasco and vanilla. Peppery spice and a hint of blackberry show up on the finish, inviting another sip. That's Ooh, the one that, that I That sounds like my kind of wine. Right? That mine too. When I was reading it, I was like, okay, I could do this one. So I know you're not drinking wine because woman's got to hustle. She got work to do. So you drink cafe. My cafe that finished, but I will still contribute my current favorite wine. But ching ching, even though I know this is probably really bad luck. Tell um, me about your favorite wine. Yeah, so I go through phases. I have like this like really weird habit that when I like something, wait, what are are you getting all those notes? Yes, like I feel like it probably like puts it in your head, right? When you <laughs> when you read it, but I can totally taste like the peppery, um, like all of those. I love those. I love plum and stuff, but I can definitely taste that peppery flavor and. It smells a little like tobacco-y, but not in a bad way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Not like smoke, like cigarette smoke. Hard to- yeah. I mean, is it like, um, you know, like, I don't know if you're like big into whiskey. My husband is, so we drink, well, we've taken like a lot of whiskey tasting classes. Like that smokiness, they call it like peaty. Yeah. Um, kind of, yeah, I guess kind of smoking it. It's just hard to explain, but it is really, it is really good. And you can definitely taste some of the cherry, you know, like that cherry aftertaste? Mm-hmm. Like, not when you first bite into it, but when it kind of lingers on your tongue. That's what I'm tasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's tasty. All right. So I'm going to have to order one of those. Hopefully, they have it on Drizzly. Um, so back to my wine obsession. I love red wine. I like white wine, too, but I get, in, I get into phases. So when I love a wine, I, like, will drink it obsessively for, like, months at a time until I burn myself out and then I move on to the next one. So my current phase is Conundrum. Have you heard of Conundrum? No, but I like oh, it already. It is so good. So are you familiar with Camus and, like, that wine from the Wagner family? I think so. I think I've seen it. I'm not sure if I've actually tasted it, but I – or maybe I have. Maybe it's the other way. But, yeah, I think I've heard yeah. Yeah, so I think Camus, a lot of people love Camus, or maybe just like a lot of people in my circle are obsessed with Camus, but it's kind of an expensive wine. Um, And then they had like a 20-year a anniversary edition, which was like $200 per bottle. I'm like, I, that's not my budget. 
But then my mom, who loves, I think the regular bottle of Camus is like 60 or 80, which is still for me personally just too much to spend on a bottle of wine. <laughs> because I'm the only one that really drinks it. My husband doesn't really drink wine. So like for me, it like hurts me to spend that much. And then it takes me like four days to drink it. But um, my mom told me that the Wagner family vineyard has, a, I don't like to call it lower end. It's just more economic friendly. And it tastes so good so i have the details here it is called conundrum red because they do have a conundrum white so this is made in california so it's a california um red blend um it is rich in velvety aromas of floral notes with tones of lavender dried berries and baking chocolate all true i've never read this even before drinking it and i now that i like remember the taste i'm like yep that's it with a silky round entry with acid to balance the high fruit concentration um, and the bottle is usually like 23 or 25 dollars. But my other favorite thing, and I know I feel like people are like, oh, that's sacrilegious. It's a screw top. And I personally love it because I, I'm not there cranking it. And then I honestly feel like it saves the integrity of the taste by just kind of like closing it all the way versus like, yeah, I have like wine stoppers, but I feel like sometimes the wine stoppers kind of pop out a little bit. So I highly, highly recommend Conundrum. I put everyone I know onto it. And like one of my friends is like, I can't stop ordering this wine because it tastes like, it tastes like like a much more expensive wine than what it is. I don't know if that's like a thing, but I don't know. And the bottle's like really cool looking, like the label. So it just feels like, you know, you feel booty drinking it. So you're like, I didn't spend too much money. <laughs> There's nothing wrong about feeling bougie when you're drinking wine. So this one on their website, I saw it was $18.99, and I got it at uh, Ralph's. I actually was able to find it at Ralph's, and it was um, on sale for like $14. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, I'm definitely, to spend $40, $60, $80 on a bottle of wine is really too much for me. Spending around, I, I probably average now. I've I've bumped up my average because it used to be like $10 wines, but now I'm like, between 10 and 20 dollar wines I'm, I'm good and you know sometimes it's okay to spend a little bit more but i'm like you i'm single i live here so who am i gonna share my wine with Do yeah I yeah exactly my normal everyday wine when i can find it because for some reason it's another one it's a Virgo called hanging vine and it's 14 dollars, and it is so good like i'm like you guys we don't have to spend a lot of money to get good wine because some people be on their like hundred dollar wine bottles i'm like i'm not i'm not at that tax bracket yet <laughs> exactly exactly so um that's funny when you're saying that so i don't know if i would try it because i don't like chocolate i know i'm a weirdo and i always I mean, i'm a chocoholic so if things have chocolate or caramel or stuff like that or grapefruit i don't like grapefruit either i love citrus fruit but i don't like grapefruit and i I've tasted it. I always feel like you have to taste something to know if you really like it or not. You can't just say you don't like something. Yeah. And so I, and those are always the things that I taste first. And then I'm like, oh, 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 like, no. It's so funny. We have like the reverse palate because I can't, I can't stand things that are super citrusy. Like I'll drink it, but I'm just like, but I'm a chocoholic. So are for me, anything that's like. Side, and I'll just be happy. Oh. Just like, <laughs> Oh my god, it's so funny. Well, now it's time to get into because we spent some time on the wine, which I always love. I love when I get to talk to people who like really love wine. Now it's time to get into the cheese man. Um, yeah. So you 
our first generation Cubana, which makes me really excited because, and you're like from Miami. I had the opportunity to get on a Zoom call, and it was you and like basically your entire family. I know that was funny. It's so awesome, but with everything kind of going on right now, what was your parent when you think back to kind of how you grew up? Obviously, Cuba is very diverse in regards to like the color of people there, like all of the Cubanos there. What was your impression or was there anything that your parents ever talked to you about that growing up? Oh, this one's a toughie. Um, Cuba is very diverse, um, but the history of Cuba is complex in terms of like what made it made up the demographic. I feel now, and I've never been, so these are just stories and from the pictures that I see, it is probably much more black than what it was like in the early 1920s and 30s, which is like when my grandparents were around. Um, but the, my lineage, if I were to kind of think about it from like my, my mom's side, my maternal side is Spain. So everyone in my family, as you saw, like my mom is very white. So everyone's very white, fair skin, light eyes. It's definitely like kind of the European Spaniard side. And then on my dad's side, my grandfather was like half black, half Chinese born in Cuba because there is like a, like a big Chinese population um, in Cuba that people don't know about. And then, of course, there's the black community. So it is very diverse, but it also goes without saying that like in many Latin American countries and in the Caribbean, it is very, you know, kind of racist to darker skinned people so I think it's kind of twofold like my family were very welcoming and things like that but how, is there some sense of normalization of racism to a certain extent yes did they think that they're being racist and how they say things no but sometimes those indirect jokes or how even like I was always the darkest person in my family. Everyone else is like white eyes, light hair, light skin. And then there was like me. Even my brother is like super white compared to me. So everyone's like, oh, negrita, la negra. Like, and it was fine. Like, I never thought about anything of it. But as you grow older, you're like, oh, that's like weird. So it's, I guess this is like a tough conversation. It was the first time anyone's asked me that. And I don't like to put anyone in my family like on the spot. But the Cuban population as a whole, yes like just beyond my family um and it's a lot of conversations that we're having just even across the board like mexican friends puerto like you know puerto rican friends like my husband is puerto rican and we're sort of having these same conversations with like his family or how like some puerto ricans or like the dominican culture here is like people don't they will their skin is literally black and they will not say they're black they'll say i'm dominican and you're like yeah but your skin is black it's not mutually exclusive like, you can be black and Dominican, you can be black and Puerto Rican, you can be black and Cuban. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think what I appreciate about this movement, and unfortunately at the, at the cost of many lives, is that it's kind of ripped the band-aid off and just kind of allowed us to have very uncomfortable conversations. Maybe conversations that we were wanting to have and we just didn't know how to, because I think at the end of the day, Latinos, we're very, you know, we're very family oriented and we also don't like to go against the older people in our families. And to some extent, you think, oh, they're never going to change. But I think also, too, it's important to be like some of the things that you have said are are hurtful, whether if that was your intention or not. 
I think it's just important to recognize that words do matter and like words can hurt or help someone. So it's been hard, you know, and I, and I know me growing up, like my parents are amazing, like literally, like they're like, they are the reason why I am the way that I am open-minded, compassionate, um, you know, giving. So it, it's just hard, but it's also like the sentiment of like my grandparents' generation. And I think that's where a lot of that was rooted. And it's kind of, it's intergenerational, you know? And it's kind of a conversation that we're having with, with one of my clients is like, we have to break like this generational thing of like even calling people negrita or morenita or like things like that. So when when you're not, <laughs> no, I'm not negrita. <laughs> no, and that's, and that's fine, but that's not the word you should use for me. Yeah, and and that those are words that we were never taught too. I mean, we were taught like you say negrita or like it was a softer way in saying instead of saying like negro or negra, which in English we say you can say like somebody is is black or not, but I don't and it, but it's so weird. Like, how do you translate it in a way? It's just, it's just a very weird conversation that makes you think in these ways that you didn't. Growing up in Miami, what kind of, like, what was your space kind of surrounded with outside of your family when you went to school? Was it a really diverse, inclusionary space or what did you, like, what type of area did you grow up in? For sure. Honestly, one of the, I always tell people what I love about Miami is that like growing up there, you never feel different. I honestly did not feel at least racism towards me being a Latina until I moved to New York, which for me was very hard to understand because I thought of New York as like this very progressive. And it is. It's like very progressive in certain aspects, but corporate America is very racist. So it was very hard for me to like reconcile that. So like in Miami, what was great is that like you would go anywhere and like you're just talking Spanish first. Right, like I could go to any restaurant and sit down and be like, "Hola, cómo estás? ¿Y me puedes dar un vaso de agua?" Like it's just like, like you don't think about it. You go into your classrooms, and like my classrooms were epically diverse in in Latin culture, right? So like I'd be sitting down, and then there's like a Nicaraguan girl next to me, a Venezuelan girl, a Colombian, uh, somebody from Honduras, Puerto Rico. So for us, for me, I know the difference between Latinos across all countries, right? Like, I I never saw Latinos as, as, like, you're just Mexican, right? Which is how the rest of the country, when you leave in certain pockets, I learned that, obviously, Mexican, the Mexican population is the largest Hispanic kind of population within the larger group. So that's what I appreciate about it, is that, like, I learned about different Latin cultures, like Colombian food. Like, I don't know, we just have, like, a heightened awareness sense of like other countries versus when I came to New York everyone's like are you are you Puerto Rican or Mexican and I'm just like I'm Cuban and then they're like really and I'm just wow like it was just very bizarre so like in in Miami the other thing I always tell people which was also hard to reconcile is that like you don't like since Latinos and you know kind of Cubans for a big part because of like the mass exodus from Cuba to South Florida. And then now with, you know, things happening in Venezuela and Colombia, there's like a huge Venezuelan and Colombian population as well. Hispanics have been a part of the ecosystem for as long as I've been alive. So everyone from CEOs to the mayor to the janitor are Latino. You don't ever see 
if somebody wins in a, a seat in the government, we our mayor is Latino. Like that never happens because the mayor has always been Latino, right? So like, there's not this thing that you have to describe yourself as such. I actually only started describing myself as Latina when I came to New York because I didn't know how else for people to understand that, yeah, I'm Cuban, but I wasn't born there. I'm American, but if you need a descriptor, fine, I'm Latina. But I never really liked that because I feel like it takes away my sense of identity from my country of origin, right? So it was very interesting. The move to New York was like a huge eye-opener. <laughs> Even my family was like, wow, you're like so Latina now. And I'm just like, no, because... I have to stand for my people. You know, like if I lived in Miami, I wouldn't be like on this Latina thing. But it was just very bizarre to me that I would like go into these boardrooms and go into these meetings and like everyone's white and they're like staring at me like I'm this like shiny new toy. And it's just like nothing that I've ever felt when I worked in corporate America in Florida. At one point I clicked. I was like, oh, I get it. I'm different. And then they could not understand an educated Latina. Like people literally asked me if my family were drug dealers because they had, they did not understand how I had nice things. No. Yeah. So I'm just, huh? Work people were asking you that? Like, yeah. Yeah. People with like Ivy League educated graduates. And I'm just like, wow. So that, Miami is honestly great for that. It makes you feel not different. But then also it's a good and it's bad because when I never felt like racism was an issue, which could be good and bad, right? Given like the current climate. But then moving to New York, I realized, oh, I get it now. Because when people think of a Latino, they think of the the janitor. They think of the person serving. Because it's very clear, it's very clear the difference. And then even to this day, like, People that are service workers ask me, they're like, how did you do it? How did you make it out? And I was like, well, I guess it's also different. The Cuban journey is very different. I always have to remind people that the journey of Cubans versus the journey of maybe other Latin cultures. My grandparents didn't leave Cuba because they wanted to. They had the life that they wanted, right? My grandfather had his business. He had property. He had his life, but he left because of the revolution. The government was going to take everything away. So pretty much you had these very, you know, to a certain extent, wealthy, educated groups of people who just happened to be Hispanic and Cuban. And then just all they did was replanted themselves in Miami and just rebuilt their lives with the tools that they had versus people who are just living, leaving their countries of origin because they have nothing. They don't have access to education. So it's a little bit different. So I think that's why I always have to tell people, like, our journey is different. So I think that's why the Cuban community looks at certain things that happen in this country in a different lens because we came here with so much education we came here with resources and that's my family story but you know every every family story is different um I definitely get that because I, I grew up in San Diego I'm a born and bred San Diego girl but you know b- growing up here it was very much like very much a Mexican culture I knew one girl who was Guatemalan and the only reason I knew is because she said her family comes from Guatemala and but I, you know, I've li- I've really thought about like when I went to school, all of my teachers, like there wasn't much diversity. Even growing up in San Diego, I didn't see anybody like besides my my like the students, right? My my peers, 
But as far as like in a leadership position, I can't think of, and I'm not saying there weren't any, but I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that was helping you, you know, within the education system, any teachers. I think the closest was an eighth grade social studies teacher, but I don't know if he was Mexican or not. His last name was Carvajal. But other than that, like, I can't think off the top of my head of other Latino teachers that made an impact in my life. So it's, so I had a very, very different, like when I'm thinking of the people who were surrounding me um, and how I grew up. And even me within our family, we were kind of like upper middle class to where my mom didn't have to work. You know, my dad worked in a warehouse of a furniture company and worked his way up where he managed the entire warehouse. So even I had a different experience than many of my friends because a lot of my friends were first generation, like their parents, Mm -hmm. you know, immigrated here. And so they were the translators. They were the ones doing everything. And I didn't have to do that. And I felt almost like I didn't, I think a lot of it was I didn't, I understood my culture. I was very connected to who I was in that way. But there were some things that I felt guilty not experiencing, if that makes sense. Like I felt guilty of not having to experience this. And did that make me less than? But I think those are things that we put on ourselves and things that sometimes come from the exterior, right? Well, oh, you don't know this. or Oh, you didn't do that. So you're not the same as me. But we didn't have like the diverse Latino population here. It was really Mexican. I mean, I grew up 30, 40 minutes from the border. So there wasn't this whole diverse thing. So I, you know, I wonder like living in a Miami and stuff, because you go there, everybody speaks Spanish. It's, you do have a lot of different things. Prior to moving to New York, you obviously go through school. You end up going to Florida International University, which is still in Miami. It is. <laughs> so you're like Miami all the way. Um, well, I tried to go away to college and my mom did not allow it. So well, see, where did you want to go? I Anywhere but Miami. I had been trying to leave Miami for since college. Um, I wanted to go to Florida State University, which is in Tallahassee. And I had oh, my friend, is, my friend went to Seminole. Yeah. Because, yeah, a lot of my, uh, a lot of kids in my school, it was like you either went to the community college, which Miami Dade Community College is amazing, or I think now it's just called Miami Dade College. You go to FIU, but FIU proximity-wise also for, like, context is literally three miles from my from my, my mom's house where I grew up, from my parents' <laughs> house. So my mom's like, why are you going to go anywhere when you have a fully accredited four-year public university, like, down the street? And so it was just, it was a battle. I really wanted to go away. I wanted to, it's just like, I've, that's just always been my thing. Like, my family, we're amazing. We're so close, almost, like, too close. Where I, I always tell my mom this, like, I'm very open about this. I'm like, Mom, like, I love how close we all are, but there was time that you smothered, like, not like physically, but just like in our lives. And I think you have to let people come into their own to see what they're capable of. How I grew up was not normal. They spoiled out of me. And that's not normal. And it could have gone one or two ways. They were fostering a brat. But for some reason, I also had like morals and like integrity that I didn't allow it to get to that point. But like, if I were to tell you the full story, you'd be like, Oh my God, yeah, you are a brat. And then I was like, I literally at one point, I was like, I just want to, I want to know what it's like to pay bills. 
right? Like I never, I never paid for anything until I was 25 years old when I decided to move out. I didn't pay for my car. I didn't, nothing, nothing. My mom would negotiate with me. She's like, oh, if you stay and you don't move out, I'll pay for your drive Who was going to want to leave? Okay, fine. You know, but it was also hard to grow up in a, you, it was hard to become an adult like that. So yeah, I wanted to go to FSU. She didn't allow it. And then senior year at FIU, they had a college exchange program with the University of Berlin. And I really wanted to go for the semester. She didn't allow it. Like I told her, I'm like, that's like the one thing I always get so mad at her about. Like I was the only senior of my graduating college class that did not go to the summer exchange program. And I saw all the content that by that point, Facebook was up and running. I'm like, everyone's having so much fun in Berlin and my mom still has a leash on me, you know, like, so I think I always thought, I'm like, why do you think I was so antsy to like leave? Because I just didn't have a college experience. You know, I needed, I needed that time to be a wild child, to make mistakes, to kind of fall down on my own and pick myself back up without having my parents help. And I just wanted to learn how to be on my own. So yeah, that's my, that's my random college story, come full circle while No, I mean, I love that because I wanted to ask you, like, what was your kind of cultural experience in college, right? Because I've had people say that when they went to college, it was the first time, like, they had been in this kind of sheltered way of growing up. And then, then they go to college and when they're in this kind of cocooned environment, they go away and they're like, oh my gosh, like, I'm the only brown person here. I'm the only black person here. It's very different from what they're used to were you involved in anything in college like did you were you able to get oh yes I've always been an overachiever but not so much an overachiever my so another layer to my story is that I grew up in a family business so I have literally working my whole life from the minute I learned how to talk our my grandfather specifically and my my parents had us very involved we grew up in the family business like you would have the playpen and all of my cousins so from a very young age like we learned how to take care of customers how to handle money how to process orders it's a photography studio and it's a pretty big one in in florida and then after that my mom decided there was like a few years that my mom didn't work um not even in the family business but then she's like i want to open up an invitation store so i was like literally in eighth grade and my mom and i opened up an invitation store together so I didn't have a regular upbringing. So I always tried to involve myself in as many activities because I really didn't have a lot of friends because all my free time went to go working in the business. So if I did activities, it was like my hall pass of like not having to work. <laughs> so I was a cheerleader for like 10 years of my life and competitively, which was like a huge time suck. So when I got to college, I cheered for the first two years and that was great because it paid for my books. And a few other things. And then I was also part of like three different clubs. One was like the National Collegiate Scholarship Society or something like that. And then I was part of the Leukemia Lymphoma local chapter. So I was really involved on campus, but for the first two years. Um, but then after once, like I had, I picked my major. I had to kind of drop all of my activities because like the campus was really far where we live. And it just became like a huge time suck. And then I had to factor in my like, go working with a business. So yeah, I was involved as much as I could, but any free time I had really went towards like working in my mom's store. But then once I graduated, I had like the heart to heart with her and I was like, I love the store, but this, this is like not my dream. This is your dream. And like, I just, I didn't want to work there anymore once I graduated. 
So I think that was really hard for her. And sometimes I feel bad that I did that. But also, she didn't want to hire anyone. She's like, well, if you're not going to help run this, like, I don't trust anyone else. So she, she shut it down. But I think, you know, it kind of is what it is. It's life, you know, our needs and our wants change. So I know that you, and we'll get to like how you started Shake Influence and everything, but how did you come to understand what public relations was and what made you choose that? Is that what you actually chose for a major or did you end up sliding into that? I mean, it was kind of twofold. It was by choice, but it was by choice because I slid into it, right? <laughs> so um, I've always been like a chatterbox my, my whole life. Like my mom, I would get, I was like one of those kids. Like when I was in school, I was very, like, I was a great student. If you engaged me, I would listen. I'm a visual learner. Don't give me a book. I, like you give me things to read. I'm not going to read it. But if you engage me from like a good conversation, but then like, it's one of those things and it still happens to me now that I'll like chase my husband around the house. Like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> when I'm quiet for hours, I need to like let it out. So I've always been like really chatty. And then multiple people, as I got older, they're like, oh my God, you'd be really great at PR. And I'm like, what? What is that? Like, what's public relations? Like, I didn't understand what that was. And then once I started researching a little bit more, I was like, oh, wow. Like, it's like a whole industry of people doing things behind the scenes. But then I started really like reading into it. I was like, oh, but you have to like write a lot. And I hated writing. Like, hate it. Like, don't make me write nothing. I I always actually excelled in math and science. And I really wanted to be a doctor. But then I was like, you know what? Let me just take, like, intro to PR 101 class at that time when you sort of have to pick your major. And I took it. And I had, like, the most amazing professor at FIU that I was just, like, fascinated by by the role. And that, like, you're kind of like this self. Like, even till this day, I don't even know how to explain it what it is that I do right like people were like, oh she just goes to <laughs> yeah people were like oh she just goes to like a lot of events and I was like no it's not but so I slid into it and I just like I, I really loved it like I love the strategy behind it I love that it's like so research heavy for me I think of every campaign as like a game of chess and I love that you have to like figure out the problem figure out like who the consumer is and how do you do something innovative every single time and ironically enough, I'm not like very creative. I'm very good operationally and like execution wise. Um, but for me, the way that my brain works is that I can see something and I can connect the dots really quickly. So for me, it just keeps my brain always going. Plus, like I love reading the news and like just on the news junkie, which is a big part of our job too. So it was kind of nice to be able to, as I graduated and I started taking on roles, seeing like, especially agencies, it's fun because you get to touch so many different industries within an agency. So, like, I started off working on, like, a fashion brand, and then I moved up, and then I, my first job, I was working on, like, the Svetka account in the U.S. Army. Like, you couldn't have gotten more different than that. And then I started figuring out, like, what it is that, like, I worked on automotive, on Nintendo, on so many different random things. But then I was like, you know what, like, I want to be able to pair my industry with beauty. Because for me, the business of beauty is, it's like next level. The beauty industry, like people, I feel like people that are not in the beauty industry just think it's very like, oh, they're just playing with lipsticks all the time. And I'm like, this is a multi-billion dollar industry and it is so cutthroat. So for me, the business of beauty is like what I love. And that's mm -hmm. how I got here. So when you like graduated, what was your experience like that led you to shift influence? Because obviously there's, 
there's always something that drives us. That's something that we're not seeing, right? That makes us want to yeah. break away and do our, our own thing. So what was your experience coming out of college, working within the PR industry? Because Chick Influence has been in been in business for five years now, right? Yep. So obviously you you worked for other places. You were, I'm sure you worked for other agencies and everything prior to. So tell me about how, what that experience was and how that led you into starting shooting. For sure. Well, I think the underlying theme was that, like, I was raised in a family of entrepreneurs. So the concept of entrepreneurship never scared me, per se. Like, I always felt like I was going to start my own thing. I just didn't know how. And I think when you are raised in a family business, the grass is always green on the other side. I'm like, I want to work in corporate America. I want to go wear a suit to a building. I want to swipe a badge, right? Because like when you work at a family business, it's so intimate. Like it's just different. You know, like I would go to work and my grandma's cooking me my lunch every day, right? Because like my grandfather's like method was like, if I feed you and you stay in the building, you're more productive and I get more out of you versus like if you leave for lunch and then I lose time. So it was just funny or like we would work and like my I'm trying to work and like my cousin is, you know, throwing a sock to my head. And I was just like, I want to be a professional. Like I want to be on a computer and wear a suit and like, you know, legally blonde it. So for me, the illusion of corporate America was very interesting to me. So before I graduated, I had already started interning. So I was like literally working at my mom's business, involved in all these organizations and then interning at a small boutique PR firm. So I was able to get my feet wet and then whatever. So make a long story short, I graduated. I already had my job lined up at a large PR agency um, that I actually got from one internship that I did. So that straight out of college, I was working on the Spedica and the U.S. Army account. And not Spedica, absolutely Spedica. So it was great. And I loved, I loved the work. I loved the access to the things that we did. I immediately realized the power that you had in that role to like shape campaigns. And for me, that was really fascinating to be able to come out of college and work at a global PR firm. And not only that, I was traveling like crazy. So I love that I was able to grow my network across the country because my office was the satellite office in Miami, but we had offices everywhere, LA, Chicago, Texas. So I love that we worked in like inner office teams. Um, So it just like really taught me a lot. And then you know, like PR agency is like any other company, you know, like you don't ever leave because you hate your job. You leave because you hate your manager or your supervisor. So I leave that, that company, but I left on really great terms with the president of the company. And he understood why I left. I had literally had like three pages of incidences from my supervisor. who. Wow. So I left to another agency in Miami and it was great. It was independently owned and it was really fun because the founder was just like a mover and shaker in, in Miami. So it was really nice. He kind of took me under his wing and like, I just networked so much. But what I started realizing is that like, man, like I really want to work on these like big campaigns. And what was happening is that like, since Miami is like such a weird demographic culturally and just from a behavior aspect, than the rest of the country, what usually ends up happening is a big brands will be like, oh, I want to activate nationwide. But since Miami doesn't function like the rest of the country, they usually hire a Miami agency to activate in Miami. So while I was working on big brands, the activations were very South Florida specific. 
And I remember just getting frustrated at that moment. One of my clients who is actually now a mentor of mine, like I just built a trust with her. And like, it's not normal to tell a client, like, I want to leave. But I really, I admired her. She was a, a Latina executive in a Fortune 50 company. And I was like, how do I get to be like someone like you? And she sat me down one day and she's like, the only way that you can become an incredible marketer is that you have to uproot your life and understand other cities. But the only way you can understand how communities work is to put yourself in that community. And that's when I was like, I was like, all right, here we go. I started sending on my resume everywhere. I had a job offer. And my first job offer was LA. But it was actually really scary. Like, I would have done it, but then I really had to reconcile. I'm like, okay, it's one thing to, like, leave your house to a new city. It's also different to leave your house and be six hours away on a plane. Because, like, at least, like, if I stayed East Coast, if something happens, you know, they my parents could be in New York within five hours, right? By the time they get to the airport, get on a plane, and get to my house. Versus going to LA, it's a different story. Like it's really far, and the opportunity just didn't work out. Every time change, like it would have just been too much of a shock. And so I turned it down. And then I really wanted. There was this one job in Chicago that I really wanted because I actually really love Chicago. It just didn't work out. And then New York came, and I never really considered New York because I was honestly I was scared of New York. I was like, it's too much of a city. Everyone puts it in your head. It's so expensive. It's so expensive. It's so expensive. But then I was like, you know what? Like it felt good because though it felt familiar because the job that I got when I first came to New York was with the same company I had right out of college. And I didn't even have to interview. The president was like, if you wanted it, it's yours. You just have to tell me yes. And that's it. And he's like, I'll give you a week to think about it. And I was like, you know what? Like this is like the perfect way to make a jump. It's three hours away. And it's with a company that I know the people because the lady who was my boss, I had already worked with her on previous campaigns when I was working in the Miami office. Because like I had multiple supervisors according to the accounts that I worked on. So it just felt good. So yeah, that was that was the jump. I moved in 20, 2010 with a job, no friends, no family here, but I was just really hungry to be able to grow my my knowledge to understand human interaction what sets off people like how do other people live how do people consume um just kind of like they're it's like sociology pr is very pr marketing is sociology at the end of the day you know so it's just kind of that and i'm so happy i did because like new york i understand new york is a very tough city it's either you love it or you hate it yeah it it's so cutthroat like i always tell people i'm like I make it look easy-ish because I'm mentally and emotionally strong, but it it is not for the week. Especially if you come from Miami where everything's so easy. You get in your car, you do groceries, it's always sunny. Yeah, you have hurricane season, but it's okay. You know, here it's like you have to walk everywhere. You're always like a sweaty mess. And then if it's winter, you need groceries, you need your carrito car. But if there's a blizzard, like how do you get the groceries down the street? Places don't have washer and dryer. Like, how do I clean my clothes? Whatever. I'm going off into a tangent, but um, <laughs> no, yeah, that was the reason. Why I know that I know the things that I am willing to and not willing to compromise in regards to living <laughs> somewhere. I love New York to visit. I don't necessarily want to move there because what I would want in a New York apartment would be way too much for me to afford. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, but going back to your question of like, how did Chic Influence happen? So I leave Miami to come here after working at two different agencies. And then what ends up happening is like when you work in Miami, you are automatically tied like multicultural. And that's fine. I've always been super passionate about marketing to Latinas because I was always very frustrated that nobody ever knew how to talk to me, like my generation. I'm not the generation that watches Univision and Mundo, like no offense, but like that's not me. Yeah. Like I, I read Latina and I'm super proud of my culture and I'm completely fluent in Spanish and I'm Cubana till I die, but I want to see myself represented in general, general market, right? Um, so when I moved to New York, the role was with a multicultural agency, which was fine, but we were working on huge brands. So it was a Unilever agency. So it was on Swap and Caress and Degree and it was awesome. Like, I was so oblivious. I traveled with a Mexican national soccer team and I was like hanging out with like Chicharrito and like Giovanni Dos Santos and I had no idea who they were. And I think that's why they, I think that's why they like threw me in there. I'm like, oh, this girl's not gonna stand, girl. She has no idea who people are. And I'm like telling them like, oh, I went to Chicago, whatever. So it was really cool because I got to see how conglomerate brands handle their marketing. I mean, it is fascinating. But like anything else, like it was hard because like in my role in my first job in New York, it was just my me and my boss within the larger agency. But in the team wise, it was just really three of us. And then one girl from our team left and then my boss left. And then I was literally bossless physically for like a year and a half. Oh, my God. So I was doing I was doing her work, my work, and then reporting to like a boss in California. And then I was just like, I can't keep doing this because like I'm not getting a pay raise and I'm working like literally two levels above my pay grade. So then at that point, I, you know, I wasn't like unhappy. I loved my, my agency because the found, the president is like an angel. He's so amazing. But this opportunity from this other agency within our kind of conglomerate group of agencies. Um, reached out that they were looking to start a multicultural practice. And at this point, it was Procter & Gamble, which is like the biggest competitor to my current client at the time. So I had made friends with the founder or the president of, and CEO of that agency from like another interagency pitch. And she's like, Lissette, I think you could be perfect. The role is for vice president. I was 28 years old. I'm like, oh, wow. I was like, come again? And at that moment, I was like, YOLO, I'm applying because I can do this shit. Sorry, I don't know if that's thing is allowed really on your show. How much I love that you were like, hell yeah, I can do it. That you owned that because how often do we, not only as women, just in general, doubt ourselves, right? Can I really do that? Oh my gosh, I'm only 28. Mm-hmm. That's a vice president role. Like, there's so many of us that would talk ourselves out to applying. So I love that you just kind of owned it. And you're like, hell, I can do this and went for it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, that's like literally been my life mantra. Like, what is the worst thing that can happen? I don't get it. Okay, fine. But I tried. I do credit, I will say, I do credit my dad for like my always like chipper. My dad is like the happiest person in the world. The world can be crumbling around him and he's like, it's all good. Let's just, let's just hang out. We're having a good day. Side note, and then I'll go back to like my journey. Like my dad, he would when he would take us to school, he would make us listen like to Anthony Robbins motivational tapes. <laughs> like, so I think like low key, it kind of like through osmosis, like it kind of put it. And then my dad has a slogan. Every single time you see him, 
you're like, hey, how are you doing? He's like, I'm fantastic and incredible. Or he'll tell you, have a fantastic and incredible day. So it's like, I was literally woken up and going to sleep every day with positivity. So my dad has always been like one of those people is like, you can do anything, anything. We used to have like these father-daughter dates where he would like take me to the mall and like buy me whatever I wanted from the Hello Kitty store. But like every shopping trip like was for like a larger purpose. So like he instilled in me always, you can have anything you want, but I'm not going to give you a handout. Like they helped, but they didn't help me pick a call. They didn't help me fill out my applications. They didn't give me a timeline of when things needed to get done. They're like, oh, you want to go to college? Okay, go figure it out. But then they spoiled me in other ways. So it was like this balance of we're going to give you enough. You're going to have to figure it out. But yeah, like he would always. And then another thing he would make me do was inspired from Saturday Night Live. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, what is it? Stuart Smiley. Oh my gosh, the affirmation in the mirror. The affirmation good in the mirror. Smart enough and gosh darn it. Gosh darn it, people like me. Yup. So my dad used to make, would recite those affirmations and make me do affirmations. And so that's why I've just never been scared about going after anything because he would always say like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Or like he always said, you're allowed to start something. You cannot quit. So you have to finish it and then you decide if, if you liked it or you didn't. So if I signed up for like dance, I had to finish the season. If I signed up for taekwondo or kickboxing, like I had to finish whatever the season was. So whatever. So when that opportunity came and at that point I was already dating my husband and boyfriend and I like ran about home like, can you guys do this? Like I just needed one person to like help me not think I was crazy. And then he's like, hell yeah. So then I did it. I got it and which was crazy. And then I was like, okay, cool. Now I'm here. And then for sure, I had imposter syndrome. I would go to the office and I'm like, I'm so important. I'm a VP. You know, I went, I had like, it was like a two title bump. It was just crazy. And then of course, you know, like kind of indirect racist things and then ageist things to happen. I was the youngest VP. Like I would go into the room with senior leadership and everyone's like 40 years old. And here I am like this 28, 29, like child, but I was smart and I've always just really, if there was one thing I've always done is like no one's gonna ever outsmart me. I've always educated myself. I've always tried to be like ten steps ahead of everyone else. So that I would I just I've always been very hungry. For listening to part one of this episode of the Wine and Cheese My Podcast. On part two, Lisette goes in depth on what she learned as a young vice president of a large public relations agency and how they didn't seem to grasp the voice of BIPOC communities, which eventually led her to start her own agency, Chic Influence. You will not want to miss the second part of this interview. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? then please reach out to me via my social media channels, Instagram at The Wine and Chisme, Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Chisme Podcast. And you can now go directly to our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com because we want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.